441. I'm Matt Derson. And I'm John Hunt. Hey, Inferno. All right, we had the opportunity to chat with one of our childhood idols, the great Buzz Dixon, writer on so many great shows from our youth. He wrote Transformers, G.I. Joe, Visionaries, and Humanoids. All these, we talk about these shows Mr. all the time T. in this podcast. Mr. T. Mr. T. We talk about that show all the time. That's right. The new Schmo. Uh, Schmoo. I don't Shmoo. even know what that oh, is. I didn't know he wrote that one, too. That's on his awesome. bio here on his webpage. So, Ninja Turtles, Thundar the Barbarian. What's a favorite? It was a really great conversation. And we only scratched the surface, really, of his long and varied career. So, thanks, Buzz, for coming on. Make sure you check out buzzdixon.com for all of his writings, his weekly fictoids that he posts. It was great. So, here it is. Here's our interview with Buzz Dixon. Thanks for listening. Yeah, it's great. Yo, Joe! Great to talk with you, Buzz. Thanks so much for coming on our show. We're, we're such big fans of, and such big fans of G.I. Joe and Transformers. So you really have done a lot for us and over the years. Mighty Man <laughs> and Yuck, I might add. Oh, yeah. Yeah, don't leave that out. <laughs> yeah, you did not discriminate in your career. You You have written for just about everything like on your website here, it actually, I mean, it goes in alphabetical order. It's, it's almost, I think just about every letter is represented. except for I, his, Yeah, you know, pretty much. Pretty, yeah. Yeah. Pretty amazing. I'm, I'm, I'm completely indiscriminate. You uh, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I was John. just going to ask really the question that, that's been on my mind for a while. And I think a lot of, a lot of fans minds, the most important question is when did you shave your mustache? Oh, it was around 2000 or so. I got a driver's license and I looked at the picture in the driver's license and I said, all I need is a, is a cocked derby hat over my head and I'll look like an Irish pub brawler. <laughs> and so I said, okay, the mustache has got to go now. And so it went. <laughs> well, that's, you know, it, it can always, you can always, if you wanted to become an Irish pub brawler, you could always bring it back. If you yeah, I don't know. I think I'm think I'm past my Irish pub brawling stage. <laughs> my my beard, I mean, the other day, you know, with the pandemic and whatnot, you get a little lax on, you know, personal grooming. And I went like a week without shaving. And uh, the other day I was looking in the mirror and I go, wow, I've, I've really got a thick beard. But the problem is it's all white. It just, you don't notice it until you're up close. Yeah. We can relate. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, these pandemic beards, they can get can get mm-hmm. out of hand a little yeah. bit. Uh, I should do one of my wife. No, it's yeah. a joke. Hashtag I told her that the other day, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I don't know. Do you Can we start at the beginning a little bit here? If you, sure. You kind of just want to talk about your, your career and everything. How, where did you, how did you get in? How did you get into this crazy gig? Well, writing? quite literally, I've, I've got to start with getting drafted. I was drafted in 1972. I spent six years in the army. I, I got married, which is why I spent year, six years. I stayed in, you know, for, you know, to the health benefits and things like that. But in any case, when I was discharged in 1978, I applied to USC's film school. I was accepted, but the film school didn't start until fall. And I was, um, released from active duty in about February of 78. So I I came to Los Angeles with my wife and uh, three-year-old daughter. And we were, I was hoping to get a job 
in some aspect of the movie industry at, at one of the studios or someplace just to get my feet wet, just to have a little bit of exposure before I go to film school. So I literally started at the top Universal, worked my way down. I was I was looking for a job as a driver in the mailroom, a gopher, something like that. Yeah, you know, work your way up. <laughs> Not even work my way up. Just just get some experience, some real world experience before film school started. Wow. And I literally worked my way down to Filmation Studios. Filmation was about maybe 100 on, on the list of places <laughs> that I was checking. I'm not exaggerating when I say this, by the way. I was hitting every single studio. Wow. Um, in fact, before I hit Filmation, I, I went over to Samuel Z. Arkov's office, and I didn't meet him, but I could hear him screaming obscenities in the phone. <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. So in any case, I get to Filmation Studios. And I bring my resume in to the um, receptionist, and I said, I'm looking for a job. And she says, well, in animation or in live action, because, you know, Filmation did both kinds of shows. Well, I don't know anything about animation, of course. So I say, well, live action. And she says, wait a moment. And she takes my resume back. And when she comes out, she says, Arthur Nadell is our live action producer, and he would like to, he'll, he'd be happy to talk with you. You can go on back and you can speak with Arthur. So I go back. And Arthur, I got to say, he was a sweetheart. He was one of the kindest, gentlest men I've ever met. A really nice guy. But anyway, Arthur was in his office. And while I had no idea of the rhythm and flow of the animation business, I later found out I had come in in the middle of what they call hiatus season. And hiatus season is a gap between the end of production on the previous season and the period where the studios, the networks rather, would start buying their new shows. And that could be, you know, it could be up to three months, depending upon, you know, the studio. And so Arthur's sitting back there with literally nothing to do. He's, he's twiddling his thumbs. <laughs> and, you know, the, the receptionist comes in. There's a guy looking for work. And he goes, yeah, send him back. Anything to kill an afternoon. Well, we come back. I come back. I talk with Arthur. He asked me something about myself. And I, I explained, you know, I had been in the Army. But before that, I had been, you know, involved in science fiction fandom. I was a, a newspaper editor and a journalist in the Army. And I had tried writing science fiction stories. And Arthur said, really? I, he said, I'd be happy to take a look at some if you'd like to bring them by. And I, well, you know, you don't have to hit me over the head. So the next week I came back with a couple of the stories that I had written and Arthur took them and he said, you know, we've got this thing we're developing and I'm not allowed to ask you to do any development work on it because if I ask you, I have to pay you. But if you on your own were to want to develop a few ideas, I'd be happy to take a look at them. Well, again, you don't have to punch me over the head. So I go back, I dig my typewriter out. I mean, we literally had everything we owned packed in in our car at that point. So we were, you know, we I, I was able to get my stories and my typewriter out of the car. So I get my typewriter. I, I write up about six or eight ideas for this show. I bring them in the week after that to Arthur. And he says, you know, thank you. And he says, I'll, I'll be in touch. What I didn't know was this. Arthur, when he read my short stories had sent them to Lou Scheimer, who was one of the, the co-owners of Filmation Studios. Oh, he wow. sent them to Lou by Federal Express 
because Lou was vacationing in Hawaii. And you've got to understand, huh. in, in 1978, FedExing something overnight to Hawaii was like a really big deal. Yeah, so he <clears throat> he FedExed my stories to Lou. And then when Lou came back, the premises that I had written for the show were sitting on his desk. And he called Arthur and said, Arthur, I, I don't know who we should hire. Should we hire the guy who wrote the short stories or the guy that wrote the premises? And Arthur said, it's the same guy. And Lou said, get him. And so That's Arthur nice. calls up and says, would you, would you like to write an episode of one of our shows? And well, again, you don't have to beat me over the head with it. That's, that's a hell of a lot better than being in the mailroom, isn't right. it? Right. I was just going <laughs> to drive around. <laughs> so I, I write up this script. I'm trying to remember which show it was now. It may have been, it was, it was for one of the shows that eventually was, was one of the segments that was eventually incorporated under the unbridled umbrella title Tarzan and the Super 7, but I can't remember exactly which segment mm. it was. It was probably uh, Freedom Force, if I remember correctly. But don't hold me to that, okay? <laughs> in any case, I, I write this script, I bring it in, they accept it, and then they say, would you like to have a, a staff job here? Well, again, you know, <laughs> being, being paid to write cartoons? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I'll be happy to do that. And I was being paid enough that we were able to rent an apartment. We were able to, you know, get our our feet firmly planted in, in Los Angeles. And yeah. when the the time came around to go to USC, I was thinking, well, you know, I'm I'm making a decent living right now writing cartoons. They want to keep me on through hiatus season to develop ideas for them. I'll just stay on another year and I'll go to USC's film school next year. Next year never came. I just, I just kept getting work. And, you know, I, I figured at the time, what's the, what's the point of interrupting, you know, a winning streak? Uh, right. Just keep working. Your filmation sort of became your, your film school. It, it certainly did. I mean, I met a lot of people there that I interacted with and, and learned a lot from in the years to come. I was able to, to wander around the studio and talk to people and just see how the different jobs were done. One thing that, that worked really well for me, most writers didn't interact with the storyboard department very closely. And I went upstairs and I got to know the storyboard department and I talked with them and I you know, uh, saw what they were doing. And I learned to listen and get feedback from them because they would say, you know, when you write it this way, it's difficult for us to lay it out. When you write it another way, it's easier. And so I began finding out, well, what can these guys do really well, really easy, that looks good? And what is it that would be problematic for them that I should try to avoid? So you, I you mean, were writing to their strengths. Exactly, exactly. I mean, I learned, I learned real early on, whatever you do, don't write a guy on horseback chasing a train around a curve in a mountain. They will, they will come <laughs> looking for you with baseball bats. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Right. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And similar to like writing comics too, you, you don't want to kill your, your artists with, with some crazy, you know, a, a stampede of horses or something like that. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you've, if, you know, whatever you can figure out doing to to make their life easier. And, I mean, and, you know, sometimes they do like challenges. You want to give them something that will make them stretch creatively. But, well, I'll, I'll jump ahead here. I'll tell you a story that comes 
later, really. But no. there was there was a show called Turbo Teen. Oh, I was and, telling guys about this earlier. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll tell you how I, I dodged the bullet on Turbo Teen when we get to that point. But in any case, I ended up, John Dorman, who I met at Filmation, was now working for Ruby Spears. And they had taken John's team out of the building that Ruby Spears was in, the main studio building. And they had moved them to a suite of offices that used to be Cheech and Chong's old offices. <laughs> and I'll, t- I'll tell you, they, they ne- never was a art team put in a more appropriate place. I mean, they, <laughs> they were right. chemically enhanced. Let me just leave it at that. Okay. Right. Mm-hmm. But anyway, so John and I were good friends. I'm going over to have lunch with John. And Turbo Teen, if you remember, it's a story about this kid who under various circumstances turns into a car. So I'm, I'm um, going over to see John. I come into the office and it's, it's a big bullpen and all of the storyboard artists are sitting at their desks and they're just glowering. They're just angry and not a word is being spoken. And I figure, Oh crap, they've had a big argument among themselves and they're all feuding with one another. And I stand there and I, nobody says anything for 90 seconds. And I know it was 90 seconds because it was a radio on and three commercials played and nobody <laughs> said anything. And then at, at, at the 90 second mark, John Dorman goes, God damn Joe Blow, which was the name of a writer. And they all start pounding their desks, screaming. <laughs> what had happened was. Joe Blow, I'm not going to mention his name, but the guy had written a script where Turbo Teen, as a car, is at a swimming pool, and he climbs up the high dive as a car, and he gets on the diving board and bounces up and down as a car, and he executes a jackknife and dives in the water as a car, and swims over to a rowboat in a swimming pool as a car, and climbs (laughs) in as a car. And they were expected to animate this. So you can understand their frustration and their chemical enhancement. It was medicinal. It was medicinal, yeah. Yeah. You took took them into consideration when you were Oh, absolutely, yeah. 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 Did did that scene ever actually get animated? I I think it eventually got in there in some shape, fashion, or form. But I mean, it, (laughs) yeah. A lot of medicine. I hope it's on YouTube somewhere. To get through. You know, you you look at the stuff. I last year I had reason to look up Turbo Teen, and and the stories just do not make any sense. Even for a Ruby Spears production of the era, (laughs) they do not make sense. They're just as as an eight or nine year old when that came on, I was like, this show is dumb. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just like random scenes thrown together, and and we'll get into the background of it. I could explain why it looked like random scenes thrown together, but we'll get there eventually. <laughs> anyway, back to filmation. I yeah, I, I I was at filmation. I I was there a year and a half, two years. They they let me go because they they you know they had a, a budget crunch one hiatus season, and they couldn't keep me on, and. I went looking for other work, and I wound up at, at Ruby Spears, where I did a couple of episodes. I don't think Mighty Man and Yuck was the first thing I did. It might have been Dingbat and the Creeps. Yeah, ding, 
Dingbat and the Creeps, for those who may be listening, it was the Three Stooges as monsters, and Curly was a fat skeleton. (laughs) (laughs) Process that one, okay? (laughs) Wow. Yeah. Um, Joe Ruby, I mean, Joe and Ken, these were two sweethearts. I mean, they were really nice guys. They were some of the best, two of the best people I ever worked with. Matt and I saw them at a panel at comic-con in like 2007 or eight yeah these decent guys yo yeah oh my god decent is not the word for it i mean they they were they were upright they were really good they were mentions i mean they were good guys yeah and the way they worked because you have to understand they were these are the guys that created scooby-doo all right and the way they worked was that joe was the idea man and he would just sit and spew ideas all day long and Ken would jot them down. And Ken was the organizational guy. Ken, when the when the day was done, would look at all this stuff that had come spilling out of Joe's head, and he would find ways of linking it together so it made some kind of sense. And as a result, you had these very strong visual scenes, but they at least flowed together. I mean, they at least made some kind of story sense. When they ended up having their own studio, out of necessity, Ken had to be in charge of the actual production end of things. He had to make sure, you know, the, the, everything was delivered on time, that there weren't any production problems. And Joe had a more dominant input into what the stories were. Now, out of necessity, he had to hire writers and they were very good. I'm not saying this to brag, but I mean, th- besides myself, you had Steve Gerber, you had Marty Pasco, Cheryl Scarborough, and Katie Cooch, who started out as secretaries and became writers and were really good writers at the studio. I mean, and 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 not counting freelancers. I mean, guys like Mark Evanier and Roy big Thomas. Names, big yeah, names yeah. in comics and in animation. Yeah, yeah mm. exactly. And so they were they were smart enough to hire. Uh, really good writers with a good, strong story sense, and as a result, we could we could we could come up with the stuff that would incorporate the wildness that that Joe wanted in the stories. But we could we could bring it out in a way that it made sense that you know you had a a strong storyline that you could follow. But it was very capricious because Joe would would make changes and add things and turn things around. And, and as much as a sweetheart as Joe was, when he set his mind on something, it was in there and, and no amount of logic, no amount of, of, you know, pointing out to him why it would not work that way would, (laughs) would help you. I spent 15 minutes on turbo team. And the reason I spent 15 minutes on it, this will, this will overlap slightly with the transformer portion of the, the discussion. So oh, yeah. forgive me for being disjointed, but no, we'll get we there. It's okay. That's how we roll. Yeah. yeah. We, I had, we had Flint as... Dilly on a couple of months ago and that that was all over the place. So this this, oh, this yeah. seems oh, much yeah. more linear yeah. in comparison. Exactly. exactly. Well Flint was there too. Flint 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 didn't start at the same time I started. Flint eventually came on. So yeah, I met Flint at, said, at Ruby Spirit. He said of you that you make him look positively catatonic in comparison. <laughs> anyway, I had been known in the industry as as the giant robot bug at that point because early on when I 
I was aware of giant robots in Japanese culture long before most people were. I mean, there, there was there was a magazine called Famous Monsters. And briefly, they had a companion magazine called Spacemen, which was about science fiction movies exclusively, not wow. just monster movies. And the very first giant robot I saw was in the pages of this. There was a, a Japanese live action giant robot show called Dai Tetsujin 17, which means Big Iron Man 17. And it, you know, I was going, wow, yeah, that's a great idea. In fact, even before that, there's a French animated film that was shown in serial form on American cartoon shows under the title The Adventures of Mr. Wonderbird. And it's a great little, it's a great film. It's the, the best way to describe it is it's a cross of Hans Christian Andersen and Fritz Lang's Metropolis. I mean, it's a oh, really bizarre, interesting film. You can find it on YouTube, track it down, take a look. But the villainous king in it has this giant robot that, you know, stomps through the city, you know, oppressing people in it. And so as a little kid, I saw this on TV. And so like, you know, giant robots. Okay, this is this. This connects in, in Buzz Dixon's brain here. So I had been preaching the giant robot gospel to every animation studio that I worked at. And I said, this is going to be the next big thing. This, this wave is about to come in from Japan because they had already had the, the Shogun Warrior toys introduced. I said, you have got to get ahead of it. If you can develop a giant robot show, you'll be ahead of the big wave and, and you'll enjoy huge profits. And everybody just blew me off. Oh. Well, I, you know, Joe calls every, all the writers in and all the art people in for a meeting. And it's with the Hasbro people. And the Hasbro people open up this big briefcase. And it is filled with Transformer toys from Japan. And they had bought the rights wow. to like three or four different licenses. And what they were going to do was they were going to eliminate the human pilots in the vehicles because by eliminating the human pilots, they can make the toys 20 to 30 cents cheaper in the, in, in the United mm. States. <laughs> and they were going to make them autonomous robots. And they were going to, they wanted to do a series. They were going to call transformers and it was going to be giant transforming robots fighting one another. And I'm in the room, just biting my lip, trying not to have an orgasm on the spot, you know? And the moment they left, I go to Joe and I say, Joe, you have got to develop the show. You have got to sign on. Trust me, this is going to be huge. This is going to be great. It's going to be giant. And Joe goes, nah, I got a better idea. We're going to do a show about a teenage boy who turns into a car. <laughs> and I said, and then the car turns into a parking lot? Because I thought he was joking. <laughs> and no, he wasn't joking. So they developed Turbo Team. And, you know, I forget who did the development. But in any case, when the when the Bible was complete, they call us in. They describe the show to us. They hand us all the Bible. And they say, now go back to your offices and develop some story ideas. So I go back to my office. I get about halfway through the Bible. I chuck it in the trash can. <laughs> I go to Joe and I say, Joe... I'll, I'll work on the show, but you got to explain a few things to me first. If the kid is a car and they take his wheels off, if he turns back into a kid, is he missing his hands and feet? If the kid <laughs> is a car and, and they take the battery out, if he turns back 
into a kid? Is he missing his heart? If the kid is a car and they put a suitcase in his trunk and Joe says, I am putting you on another show and it's on turbo. <laughs> can you, can you talk about the development of Qbert cartoon? Because I, I, I had forgotten about that. And I listened to an interview with you recently where you described that. And I was like, that sounded amazing. And what it turned into was just what, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. My God. I, I was uh, one of the other writers we had. There was a guy named Gary Greenfield. Gary doesn't get the the credit he deserves because Gary was such a soft spoken, low key guy, and and he was hilarious. I mean, he wrote very funny scripts, but he just he was the kind of guy that you would talk to him, and he's just you know he, he's an average Joe when you talk to him, and then then you find out he's you know creative genius. But anyway. Joe was developing a bunch of different video game ideas. It was going to be Saturday morning Starcade or something like that. And he gave Gary and me the task of developing Qbert as, as a segment. So we look at Qbert and we, we think to ourselves, well, what is this show about really? And it dawned on us that what it was, was a four dimensional version of the coyote and Roadrunner. That Hubert is the roadrunner, the snakes are the, the equivalent of the coyote, and what makes it different is that in the blink of an eye, the orientation can change. Everything can change, and, and all of a sudden, what seemed to be the floor is now the ceiling. What was one wall is now a different wall, and so we said, well, well we got to approach it that way, so we, we started working on just this bizarre four-dimensional world that that Qbert and the snakes would inhabit and all the crazy gags that we could do with it. And we we came up with, because we, we recognized we've got to come up with a number of ideas, viable ideas, to show that this can work as a series. And we came up with about a dozen ideas for episodes. We came up with, with at least 20 different gags that you could use using, you know, the... The, the orientation of the screen changing and all this stuff. And really, both of us felt very happy and very proud with it. And we take it into Joe. And again, literally, Joe takes this without even opening it, tosses it unread in the garbage can and <laughs> says, literally, right in front of us, throws it in the garbage can and says, I want to do Qbert as happy days. God <laughs> sakes, why? It's the weirdest thing ever. Yeah. Arguably, at the time, the most unique concept in video games. Why would you want to take that and and try to force it into another mold? But that's what he wanted, you know. <laughs> and ultimately, because his name was on the studio and the paychecks, he got what he wanted. Of course. But none of this well, was to appease the uh, video game makers or. Or oh, no. toy manufacturers or anything, it sounds like, um, no. at this studio. <laughs> it's just uh, it's no. my idea. Yeah. Well, it, it, I mean, I, I felt bad for Joe and Ken because they, they, they had a couple of hits and they weren't able for a variety of reasons to build on them. And the reasons they weren't able to build on them had nothing to do with the actual shows themselves. It had everything to do with network strategy. We had Thundar. Thundar was was a good hit for us. It was very successful. The yeah, network. I wanted, to, 
talk about yeah. that for a minute, but the, yeah. please go ahead. Yeah, I mean, but, I don't know. But I don't want... they, they just got a little antsy about the violence in it. And so they decided, well, let's go with something that isn't quite as violent. We had another show we did called The Puppy's New Adventures, which was based on a couple of weekend specials that they had done. And The Puppy's New Adventures, they were, they were your, your generic, good-for-little-kid you know, puppy adventures. That's all they were. But you know, we, were, we weren't writing tongue-in-cheek. We weren't writing snark. We were going, okay, this is, this is for a six- to eight-year-old market. Keep that in mind. Make the stories on that level, but make it you know, interesting for the kids. And we did a good job. It was, it was, I think, the highest rated series that Joe and Ken ever had. Network decided they had enough of them. They didn't want to do anymore. And that, that happened to them repeatedly. Missing the boat with Transformers. They, they eventually got into the syndicated market way at the end of the game. And the show that they did, and I can't remember the title right now, but the but the 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 last series they did, beautiful. I mean, it just looks was great. It the, it's gorgeous. The, the Centurions. Yeah, yeah. They had, they yeah, had Jack Kirby it. and Gil Kane working on. Um, yeah, that show yeah. Well. yeah. Oh wow. Yeah. It, mm. it beautiful show, but I mean, it came for them too late in the cycle because at that point it, it was becoming overcrowded. I mean, it was, you know, everywhere you turned around, somebody had a 52 episode series they were trying to promote or 65 episode series. Excuse me. That's not 52. They, they missed opportunities. Joe and Ken, after they created Scooby-Doo, they lasted one more year at Hanna-Barbera and then they were forced out because Joe Barbera wasn't about to have, you know, another pair of creative geniuses undermining him at the studio. I, I heard I heard that about about Hanna Barbera, like with, yeah. with Johnny Quest and, and things like that. They, that they would take all the credit for it when Doug yeah. Wiley was really the brains behind. Oh whole. yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, no, that frequently happened. They the story about how they sold Scooby Doo because they had pitched it to Joe Barbera and Joe Barbera shot it down, and then Fred Silverman and I. Forget if he was at ABC or NBC at the time, but he was he was still the children's programming person, whichever network he was at. Fred Silverman <clears throat> comes in for, you know, a pitch session. And the pitch session is when the studio is presenting their various ideas. And typically the studio will have the chief designer and, you know, the, the creative people present to answer questions that the studio might have. Or the network might have, I should say, excuse me. So Joe and Ken are in on this meeting because they're pitching a bunch of stuff. And what what Joe Barbera would do would be to start with a, a stack of artwork at the end of the table. And he'd show the idea that he wants to sell the most first. And if the network passes, he flips it down to the next one. And he just keeps going until he finally gets to one that the network will buy. And then he stops you know, which is the smart thing to do. You don't want to undo a sale. Well, this time, Joe Barbera goes through and Silverman doesn't buy anything. He just he just rejects all the ideas, you know, right off the bat. And Joe Barbera says, well, tell you what, give us a couple of weeks and we'll we'll have some other ideas for you. And Silverman looks at Joe and Ken because he had, you know, 
he knew who they were in the studio in the hierarchy and he said what about you guys have you guys got any ideas and ken told me he said we knew at that moment our careers at h&b were over because you know the, mm-hmm. <laughs> you're, yeah. you're just not going to be allowed to be that have that kind of power you know in the system and so we just rolled the dice and we said yeah we've got this show and they pitched what was later titled scooby-doo they didn't pitch i think i think they pitched it as the mystery machine but i doesn't matter they pitched what became scooby-doo and silverman goes great i'll take that and so now joe barbera is over a barrel he's just made a sale that he has no control over he can't fire joe and ken because they're clearly the fair-haired boys on this project but the next year boom they're out the door because you know once once they had the show locked in they could get rid of them and they could replace them with other writers so joe and ken were cut loose and silverman who by this time i i can't remember where silverman was but but essentially what happened was joe and ken were recruited to be troubleshooting story editors for primetime live action shows and they were bounced around from show to show whenever a network would have a show that was in trouble they'd plug joe and ken in joe and ken would get it you know would address whatever problems there were and try to get the show back on course one of the shows that they were put on was the planet of the apes tv series (laughs) and the planet of the apes tv series the problem that they had was that the producers of the TV show, their previous show had been Medical Center, okay, which is a big hospital drama. Mm-hmm. And it's like there's an inordinate number of Planet of the Apes episodes about monkeys with diseases, okay? <laughs> and By coincidence. And yeah, yeah. And Joe and Ken are looking at it and saying, no, 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 these are apes. We got to do a lot of stuff with them. We got to have action. And they actually came up with an idea that would have been a precursor to Die Hard. And the idea was that they would find a skyscraper buried up to the top floor in, in you know, muck and debris. But the skyscraper has a, you know, nuclear generator and, you know, can maintain itself. The inside is pristine, but, you know, the outside is buried under, you know all this dirt and debris and the human heroes and the apes get inside the skyscraper. And basically they're chasing each other up and down the staircases. They're going down the, the elevator shafts. They're doing all this stuff. It's die hard before die hard. (laughs) Die hard with primates. Exactly. Yeah. 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 I mean, come on, tell, tell me you would not watch. I'm already, I'm already imagining how awesome. Uh, And the producer shot him down. He said, no, 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 no. We don't want to do that. We don't want to do that. Well, you know, that's why planet of the apes, the live action series, you know, faded after one season. Diseases. Yeah. (laughs) So, so when Ken told me this later, when I was working for him, I'm listening to it. I'm going, Ken, you realize they were grooming you to be live action producers. They, they saw and liked what you guys did and they wanted you to be doing it in live action on primetime. Why did you end up here? And he said, Joe and I just loved animation. We wanted to do animation. We didn't want to do primetime. And 
I kind of like smacked my forehead. I, you know, I like animation too, but you know, if somebody came and dangled producing live action TV, they wouldn't have to hit you over yeah, the head with a shovel. Exactly. Right, right. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, they, they chose animation. They willfully chose animation and they gave it their best shot. I mean, they were conscientious. They worked hard, but you know, events conspired against them. What can I say? Yeah. Uh, well, I do. You touched on Thunder the Barbarian really quick. I just want to mention on your website, you have a, a, a post called Thunder the Movie or How I Almost Created Kickstarter. Yeah. Which I found pretty interesting. Do you want yeah. to elaborate well, on? I'll, I'll, I'll start with that and then I'll work back to the origins of you know how I got involved with Thunder. However you uh, want to do it. Well, basically, after as as the... Saturday morning industry was drying up because between syndication and sports television crowding them out and, you know, the Reagan era FCC saying there no longer had to be dedicated blocks of children's programming, the opportunities to do Saturday morning animation dried up very, very quickly. And Joe and Ken were looking for any number of ideas that they could ride you know, into some other business. One of the ideas was to try to develop feature films that would be shown in theaters. Most of them were of a comedy nature. They, they developed one that was going to be really funny called Rip Off. And the concept was to just literally rip off every movie done the previous year. <laughs> and just, you know, like Burt Reynolds is, you know, flying the Millennium Falcon. Doing, I mean, just, it was, it was supposed to be a comedy, obviously. Like a and, naked and gun. The, or a... And, the, and the joke was just mash up everything that had been done in the previous year. And you could do it every year then, because then every year you've got a brand new ripoff movie that, yeah. you know, Scary makes fun movie. of the previous years. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Exactly, exactly. Same idea, only for the entire, you know, uh, film, not just... Like, we, um, could, we could use that now, since they're not yeah. around anymore, right? Yeah. <laughs> Try to develop yeah. that on our own. Yeah. yeah, right. So, one that was one idea. And the other one was to do a Thundar movie. And, you know, I developed a, a outline for them that would have been the origin of Thundar, how he and Ukla and Ariel, you know, met roughly the way they meet i mean they're they're you know they both you know thunder and Ukla have both been enslaved by ariel's father and you know they form an alliance to escape ariel ariel also wants to get away from her father because she realizes he's bad news and so she helps them escape but they've got to help her so it's, it's a mashup i mean again i was kind of anticipating the movie solo but yeah, it was that's also exactly kind of right. I was just thinking about. It. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it was a mashup of solo and and basic Star Wars stuff. So, you know, it was is not that outwritten. You know, we had a lot of Star Wars influence in in uh, Thundar the TV show. But it, yeah. But in any case, we developed the idea and they couldn't get any traction on it. And I, I said to Ken, how much do we really need to raise to to get this in production? And I forget what the figure was, but it was not an outrageous number. It was something like, no, I'm gonna I'm gonna draw a number out of a hat. If it wasn't this exactly, it was in the ballpark seven million dollars, which even at that time was not an outrageous amount of money. 
And I said, well, is there any way we can raise the money for it? And he said, well, how? And I said, well, you got all these fans of the show. Tell the fans if they'll buy the tickets in advance, we'll make the movie. And Ken laughs at me. And I said, no, no, really, <laughs> seriously, do it. Just just have like it's a coupon and you, you they have them send in five bucks and they get to see the movie for free when the movie comes out. And he says, yeah, how are you going to convince student, I mean, theaters to run the movie then? And I said, they will love this because the five bucks they're not spending to see the movie is five bucks that are going to be spent at the concession stand. Yeah, that's how movies, that's how theaters make all the money anyway. So. Exactly. Yeah. I said, you, you can do this. And he thought about it. Nah, it's not going to work. So I, I basically had the idea for Kickstarter, you know, long before <laughs> Kickstarter. It. It's like love 1983 it. or four or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Before yeah. I went to. I call it kickfunder.com. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. This would have been before I went to G.I. Joe. So yeah, 83, 84, somewhere around there. I mean. Well, good segue. Now maybe yeah. we can move on to G.I. Joe a little bit. Yeah. If you to. <laughs> I have a question about G.I. Joe. Now, your time in the military, you said, was spent in journalism and and writing. How did the just being in the military affect you writing these military characters when it came your way? Well, by by that time, for a variety of reasons, the Ruby Spears writing staff had had uh, split to the four winds no fault of joe or ken's but uh, a person who was in mid-level management managed to come in one day and just alienate every single writer in about the blink of an eye and within 15 minutes every every writer was on the phone with their agent saying get me a new gig and they lost 80 percent of their writing staff within a two-week time period uh, because of this. Mm. Yeah. And, um, and again, Joe and Ken were not aware of this until long after it happened. And, and when they found out what had happened and who was responsible, they, they took the person out to lunch. The person thought they were getting their contract renegotiated. And while they were out to lunch, they boxed up everything in the person's office, changed the locks and, uh, for dessert, and they told the person, uh, by the way, you're fired. And, uh, oh, what the hell? So technically, yeah. they did renegotiate. But yeah, you, you, don't, you don't destroy the creative staff at a studio and get to stay on. But anyway, so we had all kind of scattered. And Steve Gerber had wound up at Hasbro because Steve had worked with Marvel Comics. Hasbro was okay. working with Marvel Comics, the comic books for mm-hmm. G.I. Joe and Transformers. They had done a series of commercials for the comic books on uh, TV. And I remember seeing the commercials and thinking, wow, if, if they could do an animated show that looks like this, it'll be a huge <laughs> Perfect. Hit, you know? Yeah. yeah. They were very cool commercials. Yeah. I remember those. Yeah. Now, now I have to explain something so you can you can understand the gestalt of the era. There had been in the '60s a show called Hot Wheels, and it was a good show, but the the problem was it was pushing the Hot Wheels toys. And a parents group at the time complained to the FCC that it was just a half hour commercial. The FCC looked at it, agreed. 
and they passed a ruling that said you could not do a toy-based show for kids. Oh, the, man. The caveat was if you had something that had started as a non-toy item, as a comic book, as a novel, as a movie, and then became a toy, then you could base your show on that, but you couldn't uh, start with a toy. Loopholes. Okay? Yeah, loopholes. Well, the, <laughs> the first one, it will not surprise you in the slightest to know Hanna-Barbera was the first ones to exploit this loophole. Because <laughs> Hanna-Barbera, they saw the, the Smurf trinkets were everywhere oh, this shit. time. They were hugely popular. And they were wondering, wow, is there any way we can make a show out of this? How can we dodge the FCC ruling? And somebody pointed out to him, well, you know, it's based on a Belgian comic book. Oh, really? <laughs> so they put the Smurfs into production. And sure enough, the FCC comes calling and says, hey, you can't do that. It's a, it's a toy. And they said, oh, no, no, no. Look, we're, we're basing it not in the toys, but on the original Belgian comic book. Yeah. Pay which yo. has never been translated. Fine. Never. Yeah, yeah. Never been translated or published in the United States at this point. But and the FCC goes, well, OK. And they checked off on it. Well, at this, point, <laughs> at, at this point, the the FCC, I mean, at this point, the people who own the strawberry shortcake, a licensing line, they start oh, yeah. making the strawberry shortcake specials. And again, the FCC says, um, you can't do that because they're based on toys. And said, no, no, no. It was a, a line of printed greeting cards. <laughs> really and stretched. And they go, but... yeah, okay, all right, fine, you know. Printed greeting cards count, and so they were able to do their shows. Well, at this point, Mattel calls up DC and says, we want to commission a comic book from you uh, about a character called He-Man. We don't care what's in it because we're only going to fund it for three issues, but we need to have it out before we announce the toy. <laughs> and, okay, Love DC it. does this. In, I mean, it, it bears no resemblance other than the title. But that was all they needed. Hasbro figures out, well, we better have a comic book before we actually drop these toys into production. And so they make a deal with Marvel to do Transformers and uh, G.I. Joe comic books that uh, supposedly the series are based on. So right. by the time all this works its way through, the writing staff at Ruby Spears is scattered to the winds. But several of them have wound up at Hasbro, including, as I said, Steve Gerber, because Steve Gerber's connection to Marvel made him more acceptable to Hasbro. And Steve and I were friends. We had we had met at Ruby Spears and became very good friends. So I was not one of the first round of writers that they approved to write for the show. They had they had, had a kind of quiet, what do you call it, cattle call. And they had mm -hmm. selected the writers that they wanted to work on the show. And I, I found out about it after they had already booked everybody that they wanted to have on the show. Steve said, you know, second season, maybe we can work you in as a freelancer. And I said, all right. He said, but would you mind taking a look at a couple of the episodes and a couple of the scripts and just giving us some feedback? Well, if you remember the original miniseries uh, that Ron Friedman wrote, and and get Ron is a great writer, but military accuracy is not his specialty. Okay, <laughs> he's, he's good with character. He's good with dialogue. 
and and basically in his show, he's got tanks being cut in half by jet airplanes that swoop down and slice them with their wingtips and all kinds of stuff like this. <laughs> he's got sergeants giving orders to colonels and all sorts of things. Wasn't he and in the military too, though? He was, yeah, but I mean, he just kind of. I guess like he just didn't pay attention out. when he was yeah, there. Yeah. <laughs> he yeah. started giving orders to people, and you know, yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. In any case, or, or maybe it was just a fresher memory in my mind at that point because it was like, you know, it hadn't even been 10 years previously for me. But in any case, he, uh, you know, I, I looked at the stuff that Steve sent me and I gave him some feedback and I, I, I basically pointed out they're not acting the way that people in the military act. There's a certain rhythm and protocol to the way you do things. And none of these characters are acting like they're in a military unit. They're, they're just you know, a bunch of guys running around yelling stuff and suddenly jumping on vehicles. And so Steve thanked me and he contacted Hasbro and said, look, you know, Buzz was in the army for six years. He, he knows a little bit about this kind of stuff, the protocol. Larry Hama was in the military for several years. So he's writing the Joe books with right. a much stronger eye to the military we ought to bring Buzz on at the very least as a consultant to, you know, you know, make sure that we don't go too far afield. And they said, well, there's there's no room in the budget for a consultant, but I guess we could afford another writer. So I ended up coming on board as one of the writers. Awesome. And I, I was really functioning from the very beginning as an unofficial assistant story editor, just basically making sure nobody went too far afield. And as they became more confident in what I was doing, I ended up becoming an official assistant story editor. And then, of course, I was story editing the entire second season of the show. So, you know, I, I wasn't one of their first choices, but I, I don't think I'm exaggerating to say that I was one of their vital choices. Well, I would say yeah, so I, because, I mean, you know, like what Larry Hama... And what you did, like, those are the voices of the characters. And, and I understand that you, I don't know, you decided with Hasbro or, or I heard that, that the, they were kept in separate buckets. But still, somehow there's a lot of similarities. I think maybe the accuracy to the military stuff coming from you and from Larry was just making, like, kind of, like, good coincidences between the characters as they came over. Or Hasbro had to approve it. I don't know. Well, that's that's fairly what happened. Yeah. I mean, I, I think both Larry and my backgrounds with the military certainly shaped the stories in that direction. Larry made a very conscious decision early on not to watch the TV show because he recognized it, it, it would be madness to try to sync up the two. It, right. The way you have to look at it is. You've got two parallel universes where G.I. Joe and Cobra are fighting. And, and Larry's is one parallel universe and we're the other parallel universe. Conversely, we had the same reaction. You know, Larry's a great writer. I mean, Larry and I are friends. You know, we, we he's just a tremendous writer. But we recognized what Larry can do in a comic book, we can't do in the show. And conversely, if Larry had to pull his punches the way in the comics that we did in the show, it would have negatively affected the stories he was trying to tell. So we basically said, good for Larry. Let him keep writing the way he wants to do it. We're going to keep doing it the way that we're doing it. And never the twain shall meet. And, and it's not a we're better, they're better. It's not that at all. It's just 
two different sets of props. It's like trying to compare the, the Batman 1966 series with, with a Dark Knight series. Same yeah. character, two different approaches, okay? Mm-hmm. So you just recognize that, and you to- don't try to reconcile the two. Yeah, it seems like a, a good idea. And I don't know, did tra- did G.I. Joe lead to Transformers, or did you sort of... Transformers, yeah. if I remember correctly, and I'm not going to swear to this, because I, you know, obviously I wasn't in the room at Hasbro when decisions were being made. G.I. Joe as a brand preceded transformers by you know 20 some years they created gi joe gi joe was essentially barbie for boys okay right yeah and older yeah and and in fact my father wouldn't let me have a gi joe when they came out because "Ah, that's a doll yeah (laughs) but and that was that was hasbro's genius they realized that one of the the impediments to the sales as popular as gi joe had been one of the impediments to the sales was it was a big toy that required an adult to buy it for a kid because, you know, it was, it was typically too expensive for a kid to buy on his own. The 12 foot tall one I'm talking about. It looked too much like a doll for some adults, for some parents to feel comfortable with their son having one. But when you shrink them down to three and a half inches and you don't have any clothes that come on and off, maybe a helmet, maybe a backpack. Then it's an action figure. Then it's it's okay. And when they when they changed them to action figures instead of the the twelve inch tall ones, that's when the brand really took off. And those um, action figures could move a, a lot. They didn't look like even the the Star Wars toys. You can move the wrists. You can move yeah. the arms. You can yeah, do right. something special yeah. with them, which was kind of like an ode to the specialization of the original G.I. Joe toys. Oh, yeah, yeah. I've, there, there are guys on Instagram who are doing tableaus with their, their G.I. Joe figures. And, I mean, stuff is really good. I mean, photography, staging, and you can pose the figures so they look lifelike. They're, they're doing things that actual bodies can do instead of, as you say, with the original Star Wars, the arm is up, the arm is down. There's your right. range. But anyway, they 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 came up with I, I don't know which preceded the other, but they glommed on to the Transformers. They they separated the Transformers toys from their anime counterparts in Japan and created brand new identities for the Transformer toys. And they also they mixed and matched, like I said, three or four different licenses. So people who are in the know will will tell you, well, this is you know, yeah, this is a macross. This is scales exactly wonky. Exactly, of, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And then later, of course, once they were successful, they were able to start designing their own. But it start it started with Japanese toys, and they did the GI Joe comic book and the Transformers comic book to basically get the footprint down that oh yeah this was this was a comic book before it was a toy wink, wink, i nudge, love this nudge. part of the story that you're telling us because yeah. that, that totally changes my perspective on the whole thing so crazy yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and and about that time there were so many japanese imports starting to come in 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 anime and there was such an amount of pressure to to get more of these things on the air that the FCC at the time just said, you know what, when, when there were only three networks, it made sense to require 
blocks of time for children's programming. It made sense to say no half-hour commercials. Now, with cable and everything else, those rules are out. Well, <laughs> never mind. Yeah, never mind. Well, the moment they said you don't have to do kids programming, kids programming vanished on networks. It was replaced by sports uh, programming, which was much more profitable. Mm. Um, the syndication market immediately filled up with with toy based properties. If it wasn't a toy, it was with a a name, you know, brand that was looking to make toys and they needed an animated series. What's their name? Siegfried and Roy. There was a, a mini series that they did trying to see if they could get interest <laughs> because they were wow. going to they wanted to do a, a toy line with Siegfried and Roy. That's and uh, wow. if they could if they could have gotten that up and running they would have done it why not mr a, p had a show yeah. right <laughs> that's right oh my god you worked yeah, on that, that show was, yeah i worked on that show that was <laughs> we're jumping back to ruby spears now <laughs> it's okay we had 17 characters yeah we had 17 <laughs> characters on the show and by network fiat every character had to have at least one line of dialogue including the dog in every episode <laughs> And by the time every character got their one line of dialogue in, the show's over. You know? so, <laughs> so it was it was basically Scooby-Doo where Mr. T was Mr. T and the, the rest of them were all the various Scooby-Doo characters sliced up into smaller and smaller bits. <laughs> they uh, had my eyeballs on it. I watched that show yeah. every time it was on. Yeah. <laughs> that, that show, actually, I made more money in residuals off of that show than any other show I worked on Whoa. because the live action wraparounds were under writer's guild jurisdiction. And as a result, every time the show got reshown, I got a writer's guild check, you know, for uh, residuals for that. Now nice. the way animation worked at that time, it was considered work for hire. You came in, you got paid for the script and that was it. It didn't matter how many times they reshowed it. You only got paid the one time. And Europe and South America had laws that required studios and distributors to pay the creative people on a show. And so the way they did it was they had, yeah, <laughs> they had a tax. They had a tax on videotape and they would put this tax on the videotape, blank videotapes, and then they would figure out how many shows were shown in a certain period of time in that tax period and which percentage of total time was, was that show on. And then they would figure out, in that case, you know, Mr. T aired five times and it represents one one-thousandth of the total audience. And we're assuming that everybody who bought a videotape, you know, the, the videotapes, they were recording the shows. Oh, so wow. one one thousandth <laughs> of the tax of the videotape is <laughs> due to the creative people. Wow. And they would send the money. They would send the money to the writer's guild and the writer's <laughs> guild were like, well, what do you expect us to do with it? And they said, we don't care. You are the writer's guild of America. These are the creators by law. They are by our law. They are entitled to this money. We don't care what you do with it. Well, the Writers Guild luckily has, you know, enough common sense to go. Well, 
even though we don't represent animation writers, we got to track them down and we got to pay them. So depending upon, you know, what's, what's popular or not popular, I could have gotten a couple of hundred bucks to, you know, 13 cents. I've actually got in my office a framed Writers Guild check for 13 cents from Spain. You know, it aired one time and then, okay, I'll, I'm not going to object here. I'll take the money. Yeah. <laughs> Put it sure. up on the wall, but you know, not. It's, in any well, case. Yeah. yeah it costs but, more to print that check. Than that's what artists oh, yeah, get from yeah. Spotify now. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, the thing is, if you, if you've done a lot and it is consistently reshown or replayed, it's called the long tail, you know, that will work for you. That will pay off for you in the long run. But that also requires a lot of material. You've got to be constantly generating stuff. Anyway, the, the Writers Guild, the live action portion of Mr. T was covered by the Writers Guild because it was it involved, you know, an actual actor, not a cartoon character. And we were paid Writers Guild rates for like three minutes of, of live action. And then every time the show was reshown, we got Writers Guild residual rates. So I ended up making twice as much money off of the three minutes of live action than I did for the entire animated portion. Hey, whatever works. Exactly. Yeah. That's, that's great. Yeah. yeah what, a, what a great system. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, if I can go back to run quick, because I was talking about how. You're credited with three Transformers episodes, and one of them I kind of just want to touch the Carnage in C minor. It's got to be the right. most bizarre episode <laughs> of the whole series. Well, I, I don't know. Are, are you into music? How did? Where did the inspiration for that even come from? Well, it comes from a thing I developed for animation that never got anywhere. As I told you, you know, in hiatus season, if they could keep the creative staff around, they would just send the creative staff to just generate ideas, you know, and, and basically it was to keep them busy. They weren't really interested in, in any ideas that we cooked up at that time. <laughs> and my first hiatus season at Filmation, I came up with this idea called Disco Dinosaur, which gives you an idea of just how old, <laughs> you know. The, the idea would be that it was a, a dinosaur that was a Tyrannosaurus that was a DJ and was playing music but would also this. have, yeah, would also have a, a guitar that if he hit a certain note, the note would come out and it would do something. So, you know, the idea was that, you know, if you needed to, you know, blast a hole in the wall to escape or something like that, clang, you hit the note and, you know, blast a hole in the wall. <laughs> and so that was the idea that I came up with. And, you know, Lou... Lou Scheimer, God bless him, just, yeah, right, let's get out of here. You know, it went into, it went into this big stockpile of, of unused filmation ideas. I mean, just literally, they had reams and reams of ideas that no, had been developed and no, no human eye ever saw them except the person who typed them. But anyway, that was the origin of it. And I'm, I'm... I'm pretty sure the set of circumstances was something along the line of we need another script next week. Has anybody got an idea? And I said, hey, how about this? And they said, fine, write it up. And I, I apparently had enough time at that moment to, to, to knock out a script fairly quickly. And so I did. I really wish you had incorporated the dinosaur with a guitar into it. It would have made well, it just amazing. You know, <laughs> next next season we could have done it but uh, yeah you know you 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 grab whatever you can grab we did another one 
the uh, the one with the big game hunter. Yeah. And and I had pitched a series to CBS that actually went briefly into development and then they didn't follow through on it. It was going to be called Dinosaur Hunters. And the concept was that a base had been set up in prehistoric times just before the impact of the the asteroid that wiped out all life on Earth. And it is it is set up in the area where the asteroid is going to hit because that way they know all life in that area gets wiped out. So they're not affecting history by capturing dinosaurs there and transporting them into the future. They're, they're basically populating an animal park in the future with dinosaurs by traveling back in time. <clears throat> and so they had this fort. I called it Fortnite because it was both a, a pun on Fortnite, which right. is a period of time, but also Charles Knight, the, the dinosaur illustrator, the dinosaur painter from the early 20th century. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, and again, we were going to have giant robots. That was the pitch. It was going to be <laughs> giant robots versus dinosaurs. And these guys are going out wrestling dinosaurs and capturing them and bringing them back. Well, one of the stories that I wanted to do was about a big game hunter who, who didn't want to capture a dinosaur. He wanted to shoot one. And the, the, you know, it's like, no, we're not here to kill. We're here to preserve life. And, you know, what happens to him then? Well, as I said, the series, the series went nowhere. And when at the time, again, when we, we, they needed something, I think Flint had an idea, but he, he only had like about half an idea. He needed something to add to it to make it work. And I said, well, you know, I did this thing with the big game hunter and the big game hunter looking for Optimus Prime. That would be a good, you know, idea. And so we co-wrote that episode. And the other one, Astro Train, the, the God Gambit. The God Gambit, yeah. yes. Right. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a Christian, and I get really offended by televangelists who are quite clearly con men, oh, who are, yeah. are uh, you know ripping people off. Yeah, and it 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 really offends my delicate sensibilities. Let's just say that. <laughs> and you can't. This is the thing that Rod Serling discovered with the Twilight Zone. If you try to write a contemporary story about politics or religion, you are going to run into a brick wall almost immediately from timid people at the network who don't want to hear about it. I mean, I'll show you how timid they are. We were doing a, an episode at Filmation, and they the, the heroes need to translate a Latin inscription. And I said, well, why don't they just pop down to the nearest Catholic church and ask the priest to translate it for them. Oh, well, we can't do that. We can't do that. We can't mention churches. We're not endorsing a religion. It's, it's a known fact. Catholic <laughs> priests know Latin. You could go and knock on the door and say, excuse me, could you translate this for us? And they'd be happy to translate it for you. No, I can't do it. So we came up with something else instead of uh, a priest translating it. They wouldn't even let us put crosses in graveyards. Right. I, I, was, I think I heard you mention that in another interview. Yeah. That was yeah. interesting. Like, so, yeah, no cross. Yeah. And who is that going to offend, honestly? I don't know. <laughs> it could it could offend both the Christians and the atheists. I don't know. Okay. You know oh. When I was at Filmation, Filmation, man, I got to say this. Filmation was a flipping mortar magnet for lawsuits. <laughs> they got sued by everybody. 
Scott Shaw sued them over ripping off his Vampire Duck character. We got sued by both Marvel and DC for the same characters. Both of them <laughs> claimed we were ripping off their characters. And I told Lou, I said, Lou, just tell Marvel and DC to, to figure out which one is getting ripped off and then just deal with that one. Because, uh, you know, and, and he lost to both of them. That was the crazy thing. He loses oh, to both of them. That's insane. Oh, and the, and the wildest one was this. The wildest one was this. There was a comic strip called Tumbleweeds, which was design-wise, it was it was clearly in the camp of Peanuts. I mean, that rough type of design. But it was a parody of Westerns. Every Western trope you could imagine got sent up in this. And it was a very, very funny script. Strip. It was done by a guy named T.K. Ryan. I was a huge fan of this, okay? Big, big fan. And when Filmation was doing a series called The Fabulous Funnies, they said, uh, you know, we've got tumbleweeds. And I, I, I want to do those. Give me the tumbleweeds. I'll write all the tumbleweeds for you because I love that strip. So I wrote two episodes. I had two more in the works. And the first episode aired... You know, the, the first day that the first the premiere episode had a tumbleweed segment in it. And the following Monday, we get a phone call from T.K. Ryan's lawyer. And T.K. Ryan's lawyer said, you know, your lawyer came and contacted T.K. and asked uh, if he could, if you could do a tumbleweeds segment. And he said, let me see a storyboard so I know what you're going to do with the characters. And if I like it, I'll say yes. And you never showed us a storyboard and you never got a contract with us. <laughs> wow. So zing, it got yanked off the, the schedule. I mean, off of the rotation in the, the show stayed on the air, but the segment got yanked out. And, uh, you know, it broke my heart because I was, I really liked Tumbleweeds. I was looking forward to doing, you know, the episodes. But that, that was the way they were. They were kind of slapdash in the legal department. Interesting. Yeah. So they had a, a young Rudy Giuliani as their lawyer. Oh, geez. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. And, and Lou was, was a kind and compassionate guy. And he wouldn't cut people loose, even though it was pretty obvious, you know, this, this person should not be cut loose. We had a we had a a color director who's who was in charge of designing the color schemes for the shows. I'm blanking on his name. Oh, Hal Sutherland? Me. No, not Hal was, Sutherland. Okay, his, I, I remember him being colorblind. And yeah, no, no, it was, well, he may have been colorblind, but there was another guy who was colorblind as well. And I'm trying to remember the other guy's name, but he was colorblind, and he designed all the characters, and that's why the characters were all purple and green. And I would I would write scripts that I would underline. These characters are not purple and green. Whatever colors they are, they are not purple and green. <laughs> and they'd come back purple and green, you know. And you go, for heaven's sakes, you know, give him a job doing something else. Uh, no, he's been used to doing it, and you know, it would be insulting to remove him. And you know, I I nobody ever had a problem removing. Oh man. It was a. It seems like just a crazy time between talking to you and talking to Flint and, and reading his book and everything too. It really was a, just what a time to be in that field. I want to. We want to talk a little bit because we're big. Obviously, uh, 
G.I. Joe, the movie fans and, and mm-hmm. Arise, Sprinter Arise, you were involved with, but also the yeah. Lost episode is something that I was very intrigued about. The sort of oh, Lost oh, Cobra yeah. Origin episode. Yeah, well, it's, it's, it's a bit of a tale. I'll, I'll start by saying we had a writer named Tom Dagenet who had written a freelance script, had been paid for a freelance script for season one, and then he was stricken with cancer. And, you know, we recognized, oh, for heaven's sakes, don't worry about it, Tom. Just, you know, take the money. We'll, we'll absorb it. Don't worry. But Tom had enough sense of, prof- he was a professional enough that as soon as he recovered from chemotherapy enough to finish the script, he finished the script. But of course, by then season one was done. We were starting season two, and and he came in. I mean, brave guy he came in. I mean, he, I'm not being facetious when I said he looked like death warmed over. But he came in and delivered the script, and you know, I thanked him. I said, "Yeah, we'll we'll put it in the hopper. We'll do it as a second season episode." A couple of weeks later, he passed away because you know it was you know it was just the cancer was too much for him. But I took the second season script. I, I went over it, made what few changes needed to be made because we had added or changed things from the previous season. Not a, not a big deal to do. And in the same time, I had pitched an idea that I was going to call the most dangerous man in the world, which was essentially this idea about the, the, the Frederick Nietzsche or the Karl Marx of Cobra, the guy who came up with the idea for Cobra but because Cobra Commander had so badly changed everything, had to be kept imprisoned because otherwise he'd be blowing the whistle on him. And I remember sending Tom's script in and talking at the same time with Hasbro about this idea, the most dangerous man in the world. And they said, yeah, just uh, make sure both in Tom's script and in what you're doing that you include the Cobra Emperor. And I said, the Cobra who? And I said, the Cobra Emperor. And I said, well, who's the Cobra Emperor? And I said, well, he's the guy who runs Cobra. And I said, no, he's not. I said, we just spent an entire season telling everybody that Cobra Commander is the supreme commander of Cobra. You can't just drop somebody above him without explanation. If, If you had told us, we could have dropped hints that there was somebody above him all the way through the series. But, you know, we were operating that he was it. So we got we to explain where this new guy comes from. And they go, hmm, you're right. Come up with a couple of ideas. So <laughs> now, this, is, this is the advice I give to young writers. If a producer asks you to come up with a couple of ideas, only present the idea you want to do. Because if these guys could come up with their own ideas, they wouldn't be hiring you. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Makes sense. So so I look at it and I figure, well, there's only two possible origins here. He's he is either raised up from within Cobra, a, a choice Cobra makes to replace Cobra Commander, or conversely, he has been hidden in the background all this time, and his existence, while known to Cobra Commander, has been hidden from the rest of Cobra. So I I pitched two ideas, and the one that I liked and the one that I wanted to do was Arise, Serpentor, Arise, where basically they decide they're going to make the supreme leader by getting the DNA of every great military leader in the past, 
putting them together and, you know, creating this super warrior. <clears throat> and that's the how Larry's idea, thing was too, right? Like, or I don't know if that was, it seems like a crossover moment then be, that he was like doing that in the comic book too, to introduce Serpentor. I, I think I think <laughs> they indicated to him that that was one of the paths that I was exploring. And, oh, interesting. And I don't know. I don't know if they told him to do that or if he thought, yeah, that's a good idea. I might as well do it. But in any case, I'm I'm fairly certain I'm not going to I'm not going to argue if anybody can prove that Larry came up with it first. I'll be happy to, to give credit. But I think <laughs> I, I came up with it. But anyway, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. I, I presented two. I, the other one was that there is a, you know, hidden group somewhere that has been secretly funding Cobra all this time. And, you know, they are ticked off the Cobra commander has bungled things and they want to replace him. So I send this off to Hasbro and they contact me and said, yeah, I love it. Go ahead and do it. And I said, which one? And they said, both. <laughs> oh, so that, that puts the torpedo into the most dangerous man in the world idea, because even though I had written an outline at that point, if there is going to be a secret organization behind it all, you don't have room for a Cobra philosopher that, you know, comes up with the original idea. So mm -hmm. the most dangerous man in the world got pushed aside. Rise Serpentor Arise became the miniseries that introduces Serpentor. And at the same time this was going on, Ron Friedman had turned in a script for G.I. Joe the movie. They had passed on it. They sent the script to me and said, we're going to fly you to New York. and We want to talk with you about what do you think can be done to fix the script? And I, I literally read the script on the airplane en route to New York. And when we had the meeting, I said, I'm going to be honest with you. I would just at this point, chuck the whole thing and start afresh. And they said, well, we were thinking that too. The only thing that they kept was Nemesis Enforcer, the uh, winged guy. They liked right. him. Uh, and yeah, he's a good character. So, I mean, you know, no begrudging to Ron here. Okay. It just the, the show, Ron had created the original Gestalt with the original miniseries. He was still working, I think, from that mindset and had not realized how far afield we had gone from it by the time, you know, because Ron's a busy guy. He doesn't have time to sit around and watch cartoons all day. Okay. <laughs> he, he didn't realize how far afield we had gone from his original idea. So they said, well, you know, come up with something and, and we got to incorporate this secret group. And I said, well, OK, maybe there was a ancient civilization that, you know, preceded humanity. And as humanity started covering the planet, they, they retreated into hiding. And now humanity, there's too much of us and they're going to, they've sent Cobra into the world to conquer humanity. And since Cobra has failed to conquer humanity, the next step is going to be to eliminate humanity by releasing these, these spores. And I had a lot of influence from various science fiction backgrounds. I mean, Larry Niven had created this concept called booster trees in his known universe stories. And a booster tree is essentially a plant that this alien species has cast the seeds around the galaxy. 
and it's a plant that grows up into a solid fuel rocket booster. So if you're trapped on a planet and you need to get off, you just cut down a bunch of these trees, strap them to your spaceship, and you're in orbit. You know, there were ideas like that. I think Heinlein in Starship Troopers alluded to the fact that, that the things they were fighting did not use technological weapons. They used biological weapons. There were other examples of this. So I, I kind of like mined all of those areas and came up with the idea that, that there would be this secret civilization that had, you know, they were using biological creatures instead of, you know, technical weapons and tools to uh, do things. I remember we, we were discussing where this civilization could be hidden. And there was some reason why it couldn't be Antarctica. I think somebody had just done something set in Antarctica. There was another reason why it couldn't be a lost island in the Pacific. I'm, I may have vetoed the island in the Pacific, saying that just every island was pretty well charted by now. And the only place we could think of was, I said, possibly in the Himalayas, you could have a, a fake dome glacier, a fake glacier covering the civilization underneath and as a placeholder name i come up with the name cobra law because i'm going their legal department will recognize cobra law is clearly an allusion to shangri-la the most famous lost civilization <laughs> in literature right. and, and that's the last will... time you did that oh yeah <laughs> Oh yeah, I tell I tell people if you're going to use a placeholder name, never never insert a placeholder name that you cannot live with. <laughs> and I've got I've got a a um, work in progress right now. I just finished the first draft on it, and I've got a, a very mundane name for the community that the the story takes place in. But at least if, if I can't come up with a better idea, I can at least live with this. I can go, oh, well, yeah, it's not the greatest name in the world, but it's not embarrassing. Springfield. Yeah, I tell people, yeah, if you're going to come up with a name, come up with something that absolutely can't be used, like Granny's Body House, <laughs> Hemorrhoid Island, you know, something like that. Something that absolutely cannot be used. Sounds like the comic uh, these guys make. Yeah, yeah. So they, they loved Cobra Law. And I go immediately, no, 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 you, you, you cannot use Cobra Law. Trust me, it, it, it's too similar to Shangri-La. It was only a placeholder. Let me, give me some time. I'll think of something. No, no, we love it. We love it. And so they go with it. <laughs> and to compound matters, okay, this is before we have cast any characters, okay? To compound matters, as I'm doing the script for the movie, I'm thinking, well, I'm stuck with Cobra Law. What can I do with it? And I remember this scene in the movie Lawrence of Arabia. Early on, a, a Bedouin tribe is using the women in the tribe as living air raid sirens. They are standing on the top of a mountain. They're keeping their eyes peeled for uh, Turkish Air Force bombers coming at the, at the tribe. And the moment they see the bombers on the way, they turn around and they have this incredibly high-pitched trilling sound that they make that can be heard for miles. And I thought, okay, that's what we can do with Cobra Law. We make it this incredibly high-pitched trill, Cobra, and it's supposed to be just piercing. <laughs> and, and it becomes the battle cry. 
they cast Dick Godier as Serpentor. Dick Godier, great actor, okay? I mean, really wonderful talent. Perfect for the job of Serpentor, not perfect for Cobra. Unintentionally funny scenes yeah. in a movie. Eight octaves too low. And we're in the recording session, and he does it, and I go, whoa, stop. Don't do that. I said, give me five minutes, and I'll give you a better battle cry. Please, just give me five minutes. Nah, we like it. It's great. We'll go with it. <laughs> oh, jeez. <laughs> you know? Oh. Yeah, the and then they were it's out of your they, hands at that point, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They they were going to now. Now, what they had done, if you if you watched the show enough, if you're familiar enough with the show, they cycled characters and vehicles out and introduced new ones. You know, from season to season. And typically, we just wouldn't mention that a certain character was no longer you know being used. But on occasion, we would do something like, I think, Sparks, who was the original Camo guy. Sparks pops up as a civilian in episode two, I mean, in season two, who, who you know, is, is contacted as a consultant for some technical problem. And we did that just to show that there was some kind of continuity going on. The, the Joes that stay in the alternate universe in Worlds Without End, they were Joes that were being cycled out of the toy line. So, you know. Yeah, let them let them go be heroes in another parallel universe. You know, maybe they'll link up with Larry's guys. Okay, <laughs> that sounds very like Star Trek or something. Yeah, so we we let them go, and they were going to cycle out a whole batch of characters, including Duke, which we we have since come to realize that was like a a bad bad move. Duke is like one of the most popular characters ever in this show, but they were going to cycle Duke out. And I said, look, we have been doing a war show for two years and Lord knows how many miniseries at this point. And we haven't killed anybody. We've had people get injured, but we've never killed anybody. And if it's a war show, let's if if Duke is going to be cycled out, let's kill him off. Let him die heroically. So that kind of shaped where the story was going, the whole subplot with Lieutenant Falcon and, you know, Duke was supposed to die, Serpentor was supposed to kill him. They were releasing three Hasbro-related movies that year. My Little Pony, Transformers, and G.I. Joe. And they released them in that order because they thought it would build that the the... My Little Pony audience would get people to come to the Transformers movie, would get people to come to the G.I. Joe movie. They later said, we made, we made a mistake. We should have started out with Joe, which was <laughs> the strongest of the bunch, and then Transformers, and then wrapped up the summer with My Little Pony. Okay, My Little Pony, so-so business, all right? Transformers does good business. But the problem is the Transformers audience were kids nine to 12 years of age. Okay. That was the target range. GI Joe were kids 12 and over and kids 12 and older intellectually understand the concept. People get hurt. People die in combat. Transformers. They're not quite there yet. They're not quite ready to embrace that idea. So you have all these parents taking their nine-year-old, 10-year-old kids to see the Transformers movie and I can only imagine these poor parents, they're, they're sitting there trapped for an hour and a half in the theater 
where for it looks like a hallucination spoken in high Urdu. You know, I mean, it's just like, what the hell is going on here? I don't understand any of this. And then all of a sudden, Optimus Prime dies, and every kid in the place becomes hysterical. And we, we got reports. We yeah, yeah, got reports of, of kids locking themselves in closets, kids crying unconsolably for the rest of the movie. And there was this huge feedback from the parents. No, we don't want this. So they immediately said, we're going to redub the line and Duke will just be in a coma. And I'm going, no, no, we can get away with it with Duke. Just just trust me on this. Kill him. Nope. <laughs> so he's in a coma and then, ah, he's out of the coma. There's a, <laughs> there's a John Woo movie. I can't remember the name of it now. It takes a thief. I just remember the name. There's a John Woo movie where Cho Yun Fa and I forget the other two co-stars. They're, they're a trio of thieves and it's a romantic triangle one gal two guys and they're a trio of of art thieves who are stealing fabulous treasures all over the world and it ends with a typical john woo shootout where cho yun fa is like riddled with like 180 you know bullets and a lot of birds are and doves are flying yeah yeah but he's just he's completely (laughs) bullet riddled and the the other two members of the romantic triangle uh, hold his dying body and you know he, he basically blesses them and tells them you know be together and be happy and then he dies and test audiences hated that and the producers told Wu you've you've got to put a happy ending on it and Wu said you want a happy ending I'll give you a happy ending reshoots the ending where just as Wu as uh, Cho Yun Fa is about to die one of the other characters says but if you die, who will babysit our children? And then they <laughs> jump ahead several years in the future where Cho Yun Fa in an apron is chasing around an apartment full of little kids. And there's just like slapstick comedy for a couple of minutes to show that he survived and he became a babysitter. And it's just like, you know, all right, you want your happy ending? Here's your happy ending. I got your happy ending, right? So this was your version of Duke came out of his coma. Yeah. I didn't write that line. I did I'm not sorry. write that line. They stuck <laughs> right. it in on me, and that's just, uh, geez. Uh, yeah, yeah, I killed I killed that son of a bitch deader than you can kill it. <laughs> would it have been worse if you had a character say, oh, shit, what are we going to do now? Like they did in Tramps and Was the Movie? Or was... Well, see, that was the thing that I told them at the time. I said, death to a robot doesn't mean the same thing as death to a human being. You can crush a robot. You can run a steamroller over him. You can chop him into little tiny bits like they did at the end of Iron Giant. And you can always put him back together. You can always fix him, repair him. You can't do that with a living thing. And, you know, just let it go you know <laughs> let him let him die anyway and and they also admitted they made a mistake in trying to introduce new characters and this for for anybody who's doing uh, a movie based on a tv show the audience doesn't want to see new characters the audience wants to see their old favorites doing stuff okay don't try to introduce major new characters just focus on the old characters. And that was one of the, the negative feedback we got on both 
we got on all three movies, in fact, that, you know, we spent too much time with characters that nobody knew and at that moment cared about because they had paid their money to see the little ponies they loved or the Transformers they loved doing stuff that they wanted to see, not some other characters they didn't know about. Yeah, and then when they killed Rainbow Pony in My Little Pony, <laughs> the parents just went through the roof. Yeah. Well, they, they released the My Little Pony movie first. It, it did not do well. The Transformer movie was released, and it had this big blowback. And uh, Dino De Laurentiis, who was the distributor, had promised we would have three matinee shows on Saturdays and two matinee shows on Sundays. And instead, all he was able to deliver was two matinees on Saturdays and one matinee on Sunday. And Hasbro, you know, just at that point, backed out of the agreement. And G.I. Joe, the movie was shown theatrically only twice. It was shown once at San Diego Comic Con as a sneak preview. And it was shown once a couple of years ago at the Egyptian, the American Cinematique, they did a uh, special anniversary double feature of the Transformer movie and G.I. Joe the movie. And I have to say, I, for a long time, I felt very uncomfortable about G.I. Joe the movie. But when I saw it in a theater filled with fans who were there wanting to see it, the stuff that I used to cringe at a lot, I could bear with now. And uh, the good stuff, I think, turned out pretty well. So I am no That's longer crazy. cringing you know? in the theater. Wow. Uh, yeah, I, I think I would go see that double feature for sure. I'd pay yeah. a lot of, you know, anything. It's because uh, the movie, I stumbled across that at a video store when they first released mm -hmm. it. I was like, I didn't even know this was a thing until. Yeah. yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. I, I have, um, I wanted to ask you, I, I don't, we don't want to keep you forever. We've already had you on for a, a long time. Just wanted to ask you a little bit about your relationship with like Sergeant Slaughter. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, Sarge is a cool guy. Uh, my second mustache question of the day. <laughs> yeah, you can't tell us apart in those old photos, can you? <laughs> um, no, Sarge is a cool guy. His, 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 his real name is Bob Remus. And he became interested in professional wrestling five to 10 years before he became Sergeant Slaughter. And he was a generic heel. He, he wrestled under the name Bob Slaughter for a long time. And he was basically going around from town to town, getting beat up by the local hero. And, you know, that's the journeyman stuff that you have to do when you're starting out as a wrestler. He got involved in what was then the WWF I think it's the WWE now. He got involved in what was then the WWF, and they created this persona for him of Sergeant Slaughter. And you have to understand, this was at a time when Americans were very down on the military. We had, we had just lost the Vietnam War. People were really sour on the military experience, very negative feelings about it. And they created Sergeant Slaughter to be the mean drill sergeant that everybody hated. And he was one of their biggest and best villains. And I don't know if you've ever seen it, but they gave him one of the greatest heel-to-hero turns anybody ever got in professional wrestling. They had the Iron Sheik. who The Iron Sheik was actually like an Olympic uh, contender, if not a champion, from Iran, who emigrated to the United States. And, of course, there's no real wrestling 
professional wrestling. I mean, in the sense of competitive wrestling. And so he adopted the Iron Sheik persona. And when Iran seized the hostages, he becomes the favorite bad guy. He's out there waving the Iranian flag and he's got the, the Bernus on and he's screaming insults and whatnot. And there was, there was one televised event where he's come up and he's kicked the crap out of somebody and screaming insults at the crowd. And he's coming down from the ring and Sergeant Slaughter is standing there blocking his path. And instantly, blink of an eye, the Sarge went from the villain everybody hated to the hero everybody loved. And they they did a series of matches that were among... I was watching professional wrestling at the time. And they did a series of matches that are among the best matches that anybody ever, ever staged for uh, pro wrestling. Later, when I got to work with him, he he was he and his wife were delightful people. She told me this great story about how just before he became Sergeant Slaughter, he was going to be uh, performing at a charity event. And he they had two daughters, about six or eight. I don't know the exact ages, but in that age range. And the, the daughters were always asking mom, he says, where does daddy go every weekend? And he comes back all beat up. <laughs> and they, they kind of recognize, well, we got we got to explain daddy's a professional wrestler. And so he was going to wrestle in a local charity event. And because it was going to be a charity event, it wasn't going to be as bloody as, as, you know, one of the, <laughs> the one Sheep of the, one of the pro shows, yeah. you know? So they're like, okay, well, this will be it. We'll, we'll take them in. We'll explain. It's all play acting. Nobody's getting hurt. Well, they go to the event and the older girl freaks out. That's her daddy up there getting hit repeatedly and slammed onto the mat. <laughs> and she's freaking out. And, and the mother realizes, I got to get her out of here, grabs her and is going up the aisle and realizes she doesn't have the six-year-old with her. And she turns to see where the six-year-old is. And the six-year-old is jumping up and down in her chair, screaming. Oh, classic. Yeah. So how did he get involved in the in G.I. Joe, the, you know. Show I I am not a hundred percent sure <laughs> the exact way he got involved or his character got involved. I do know they had approached several sports celebrities at that time. Mm-hmm. The refrigerator was yes. was briefly a member of GI Joe. Rocky Balboa Rocky. was supposed to be a member yeah. of GI Joe, and then Stallone got greedy and and sold the rights to Rambo to a competitor. And there's a, a G.I. Joe yearbook that has an, an addendum to it. We want to note that Rocky Balboa is not, never has been, and never will be a member of G.I. Joe. <laughs> I remember this. <laughs> Why remember was he this. in there? <laughs> yeah. Because I remember Sergeant Slaughter also did those live action wraparounds. Yeah, the wraparounds. Yeah. yeah. That, that was another thing I got paid WGA money for. So uh, <laughs> yeah, that's nice. great. Yeah. I got, I, I was sad when they stopped running those because uh, those were like a, a hand. Those were a handful of episodes to generate interest at stations that had not previously carried G.I. Joe. And they would they would offer them as, well, here's like our best episodes and we'll let you have them for free and you can show them to your audience. And if you get a good response, then maybe you'll want to, you know, get the show from us. So that was what that was for. That was to, to generate interest in markets that they hadn't completely penetrated yet. 
And uh, as long as they were running them, I was getting paid WGA money. So I, I was happy with that. <laughs> I feel bad for any kid that wasn't glued to the TV from three to four like I was watching G.I. Yeah. Joe and Transformers <laughs> Power Hour. Yeah. Well, we. I had... remember though, in like not, uh, during the, the the Gulf War, they made Sergeant Slaughter into a bad guy again, and like an Iraqi sympathizer and stuff, and that was like yeah, that was kind of heartbreaking. They, I was like, wait a minute, yeah, they they did weird stuff. I mean, they yeah. they I I finally I finally gave up on it. They did. They had a talk show. Remember that. They had a two-hour talk show that they did that was just, oh, yes. it was basically no wrestling, just the guys coming out in character. And yeah, it was like a Johnny like, Carson kind of. Yeah, sort of. I remember watching that, and I was amused by it. And then they did a segment where I can't remember if it was George the Animal Schultz or if it was Andre the Giant, where they were reprogramming his brain. And they obviously <laughs> had just a metal colander <laughs> with wires attached to it. <laughs> And yeah, at that it was point, George the Animal, you're right. Yeah. At yeah. that point, I'm looking at it and I go, you know, this, I, I'm a firm believer in what I call embrace the absurdity. And, and that is every, every story, even a realistic story, there's, there's something absurd about it, that it, it just would not happen this way in real life. And what you have to do is you just have to recognize that and say, okay, we're going to roll with it. This is what this story is. And we're just going to pretend that this, this thing that obviously could not happen can happen. G.I. Mm. Joe, I mean, it's, it's obvious. You're not going to be moving massive armies around in the blink of an eye. You're not going to be having explosions and cave-ins and all this without killing a lot of people. We'll, we'll, we'll just roll with it. <laughs> Professional wrestling... Up to that point, you know, I'm going, okay, I, I'm willing to suspend my disbelief. I'm willing to suspend that there are these super partisan guys who, who you know, these, these crazy characters who really believe and feel and act this way. You know, for the duration of the match, I will, I will suspend my disbelief. When they made that turn, that was like the moment I'm going, okay now you've lost me now now you have gone the step too far mind you if you had started out at that level i would have gone okay all right fine i accept this i i accept you've got you know these these guys that you can control their brains and you can do this and that and the other things but you have to start at that level it's kind of like the the analogy of jumping the shark which is is a right. literal thing happy days ran out of ideas and they one of the ideas was well let's have fonzie jump a shark tank yep yeah, and then when you guys did yeah. cubert i was like oh my god yeah cubert yeah. <laughs> jumps the, yeah. the snake or i guess oh well i mean it got even worse than that there was there was a a animated show that ruby spears did the production on it but hannah barbera got the credit for it that was basically there was laverne and shirley in space with a pig and Laverne and Shirley in the army with a pig. And then there was Happy Days, Happy in, Days space. in Space with a dog or something. Yeah. And <laughs> Mork and Mindy. We we got we were doing Mork and Mindy. And I remember thinking, well, you know, we got the best end of the deal because Mork and Mindy, you got Robin Williams, you have in animation the ability to do off the wall stuff. 
we can we can actually make a Mork and Mindy animated show work. It's not going to look, you know, you, we're not jumping the shark like the Laverne and Shirley and the Happy Days in Space yeah. are jumping the shark. Right. And editor that we had on it, I had written the script, and I had the Mork character giving an RRR pun. Because if you remember the show, he would do RRR a lot. Yeah. And he made R&R puns in the show. How would you like a little R&R, R-R-R, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> and I, I wrote this script and he changed it to onk, onk, onk. And I said, no, no it's not onk, it's R. It is very clearly an R sound. They're making jokes about it being an R sound. No, it's an onk sound. And I said, no, <laughs> trust me, just watch a couple of episodes. It is an R sound. And he insisted on doing it his way. And Robin Williams had was contractually obliged to do the voice because of the contract he signed to do Mork and Mindy. And he read the first couple of scripts and he told Joe and Ken, he said, you send me all the scripts when they're ready to be recorded. I will record them in my home and I will send you the tapes and that's it. I will have nothing else to do with the show. (laughs) <laughs> and he literally recorded his voice tracks laying flat on his back in his bedroom in a cassette recorder. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. And no, no direction, no nothing. He just read the stuff, read through them as, as um, quickly as he could. Not, you know, he, he made sure he said the lines correctly, but he read them through and he sent them in and nothing else to do with the show. Wow, I'm sure the quality was, was excellent. <laughs> oh yeah, Jeez. so difficult to do onk uh, jokes. Yeah, too. yeah. <laughs> Come up with a yeah, onk. but then they're they're in they're in in the hospital. Well, it's an oncology joke. All right, we don't want to keep you again. Like we said, we've already we've taken up a lot of your time, and you're clearly a busy man because you are still working on a lot of. You are writing constantly here. Is there anything? Yeah. You have a couple of things here on your website that are forthcoming. They say novels and long form yeah. fiction. Do you want to hype those up a little bit or plug those or anything? I, or? I will I will say this. I I have one book ready to go, a young adult book, but I am holding off on it for a while. I'm kind of reevaluating my my strategy, so to speak. Okay. I have just finished writing a satirical Contemporary social satire is the best way to describe it. It's a it's a, a raucous version of Lake Wobegon would be the, the the elevator pitch. But I've just finished the first draft on that. I'm going to let that lay fallow for a few weeks and then go back at it and uh, trim it up. I, I tend to write longer and looser in my first draft because it's it's you know I'll, I'll repeat information and when I'm going back, yeah, I don't have to say it this time. I've already said it that sort of thing. But you just want to get it written down. You want to have it right. in place. So I'm going to give myself some time. I'm going to work on another project. I do these things called fictoids. And I actually do two different things called fictoids. One, you mentioned Instagram. 
Um, on Instagram, I have every day I post a picture like of an old magazine illustration or an old advertisement. I was, I was wondering where you got those from. Yeah, just a, like and, a Google search or something. Yeah, well, there's a there's a couple of webs there's a couple of websites that I follow, and then there's on Facebook there's there's one website called Today's Inspiration that is no longer a public site because they got hit by spammers, and so they had to. It, you may be able to find it and, and ask if you can join, but they all focus on what is called mid-century advertising, which is or mid-century art, which is 1920s to 1975, which was kind of the golden age of magazine illustration. So there's a lot of that stuff. And I just, you know, I find stuff and I put funny captions on them. I twist them around. I'll, I'll, there's there's one from some old pulp magazine where there's, you know, the damsel in distress is... is strapped to a cart that's about to go into a fiery furnace and she's saying this is the worst disneyland ride and uh, stuff like that i mean just silly silly stuff then i also do these these short fiction pieces that come up every tuesday on my blog site and my my blog is www.buzzdixon b-u-z-z-d-i-x-o-n.com buzzdixon is all one word and every every Tuesday, there's a short, short story that, well, it's just a, it's a weird little take on something. One of my, one of my grandkids gave me a notebook that had at the top of it, a writing prompt and a list of 10 words to include. And I took that oh, as a challenge. Cool. And so, so that's everyone fun. is, is based on the writing prompt and the 10 words that had to be included in the story. And. You know, they're they're a lot of fun to do. I can blitz them out in about ten or fifteen minutes, and you know, if they don't turn out perfect, you go, well, okay, I learned something here. I won't do that again. But every now and then, I go, ah, well, I'll keep that in mind in the future. So, I've got that's every Tuesday, and I've got up through April of 2022 scheduled. So, uh, there's a lot to there's a lot to see there. Yeah. Yeah, well, all right, buzzdixon.com. Uh, yeah. yeah, check it out. Uh, yeah. I'm on there right now. It's a lot of great yeah. stuff on there. And yeah, yeah, some of those old advertising images are quite, quite funny, actually. Again, thank you so much for, for coming on. Yeah. Oh, it yeah, was great to you. talk Absolutely. to you. Yeah, yeah, we are fans. We've been trying, you know, we've been thinking we want to do this for a long time. So this was well, thank you. Great. Thank you for having me on. Fighting for freedom. God damn Joe Blow!